Well, you can be opening your Bibles to the book of First uh, Peter chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 11, I mean 6 today, going through 11. Uh, there are more verses than that in the last chapter. The end of it is some personal things from, from uh, Peter to uh, some of his fellow workers. And uh, we're going to kind of skip over that. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, a guy named Silvanus, who's also Silas, who was with Paul, delivered this letter for Peter to, to the church. And, and he says... Um, she who is in Babylon, and the she is the church, and Babylon is in, in uh, bad, bad places. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew, it's page 1206. Uh, just to help you out there. Um, and so, I, I just kind of want to let you know that. They, they put their greetings at the end sometimes, uh, in, in a way. And then, um, he just asked that they greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, we don't do that. But they do on each cheek. That, that still happens in a lot of places today. So uh, I just want you to know. Somebody said, what's a holy kiss? That's how it says it in the King James. And a preacher said, less than two seconds. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure exactly. But um, So I, I know you just sat down. I'm, I'm calling this identity of a warrior today. Um, the overarching theme that we've used for First Peter was uh, in, a, in, a, in a fallen world, in a world of imposters, who are we? And I don't want you to be a worrier, but so many of us are a worrier. I want to talk about that today. So I want you to look for the word worry in this passage. Would you stand up? We're going to read it together, beginning at verse number 6 of First Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, your faithful servant, Peter, that you spoke through to write this down for us. We thank you for Peter's life. We know his reward was great in heaven, um, as were all the workers that you have in the world uh, proclaiming your word. But Lord, we just thank you especially for Peter, um, whom you gave the keys to the kingdom, uh, who uh, preached there at Pentecost, and to the, to the Samaritans, and to the Italians so that all could all the nations could come under the banner of the kingdom of God so we thank you for Peter opening those doors uh, unlocking the doors you gave him the keys to that we could that we could uh, be here today and we are grateful for that and so Lord I pray that we would hear what your spirit told him to write down and may we be able to apply it to ourselves today in Jesus name amen thank you y'all can sit down um I don't know if you noticed but the word worry wasn't in there but there was a word in there Anxiety, and uh, and we misuse that word a lot today. A anxiety is, uh, it, it, and here's how we misuse. We say, oh, uh, you know, my relatives are coming to visit. I'm so anxious for their visit. And what we mean is we're excited for their visit. If you're anxious, it means you're worrying about it. It means you're concerned about it. It means I can't get the house cleaned up in time. If Janice goes off to visit her mom or something. We have an app on our phone so we know where each other are. And when she hits Virginia, I don't have enough time left to finish cleaning up the mess I made. 
So we worry about things. Sometimes we shouldn't worry. And there's another word in there. He, he, it's the word suffering. I don't know if you, you caught it. It says in verse 9, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brother throughout all the world. So suffering can cause some anxiety, can it? We just have anxiety in life. We, it could be financial, could be relational, could be spiritual. I hope you maybe aren't anxious spiritually, but you're paying attention because that's kind of what Peter is going to tell us here today, to be paying attention. And so I, I want to define the word worry because we understand that, but I want you to understand what I mean when I say the word worry. So let's define it. Now, this comes from Wikipedia, and I know that could be wrong, but it is a pretty good uh, uh, overview of it. It says, worry refers to the thoughts, images, emotions, and actions of a negative nature in a repetitive, uncontrollable manner. In other words, you keep mulling over something that's bothering you. And here's how I like to, to say what worry is. Worry is trying to do God's job in your life. All right? It's, it's trying to control a situation rather than humbly allowing God to con, uh, control our life. And now I want to play on that word warrior. God doesn't want us to be warriors. He wants us to be warriors. And that's a different thing. But it's not warrior like you think of. It's a different kind of warrior. That's not even the take-home statement. Would you put that up for us, please? True humility before God does not allow us to worry. That's the theme here in these last verses of Peter. He's bringing this book to an end. And all of 1 Peter, and we're going to start 2 Peter next week. But all of 1 Peter has been, you're a Christian. You're going to suffer. God's got it under control. Then wash, rinse, repeat. I've said that almost every service, but I want you to hear it because that's what First Peter's about. He's trying to get you to think of this, and at the very end, he comes through with, this is how it works, okay? And so that's what we're, we're looking at today. Now, I, I want to start the first point by saying, what happens when pride is present? So what, what is going on? I never thought of this in these terms until I studied for this sermon, um, but, but we notice something here in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. Now, I've said it a million times, so you get it. When you see the word therefore, you've got to look to see what it's there for. All right, just go back one verse. That's all you've got to do. Because you're going to get, I hope you'll get a new understanding of the word humility today. In verse 6, I mean, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, and that the younger is the whole church, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Because we should be humbled before God. We should be humbled, have humility toward each other. Why? For God opposes the proud. And the opposite of pride is humility. And if you don't have humility, you have pride. And if you have pride, you want to run your own life. And when you try to run your own life, you have worry. So worry is, by association, the sin of pride. Now, I know I quit preaching and went to meddling right there. Because I know what it is to worry. And I'm sure you do too, to some degree or another. Some of you may be experts at it. Some of you may, no, nah, I don't let things get to me. But things get to you whether you know it or not. All of us have anxiety in our life. We all can experience that. And so verse 6 is attached to verse 5. We have to be showing humility toward each other. 
But the way we are able to do that is we humble ourselves. We, we come to a place where we put ourselves in a position that considers everyone else more important than you. That's how Paul put it uh, in his writings. He said, consider others better than yourself. Prefer one another. Give, give room to it. The person who always wants to be in charge should not be in charge. Because sometimes that person has a pride problem. It's the guy that steps back and says, let's just get the job done. That's the guy you want. Because nobody knows it all. Nobody has, whenever you go to do something, a hundred things go wrong. If you're a genius, you'll think of half of them. Okay? It's just, we need each other so much. And so he says, show humility to one another and then humble yourselves. That's something you have to do to yourself. Please, well, I won't say don't ask God to humble you. Maybe some of you need to do that. But he humbles you with a two by four. I'm just going to tell you, you, you don't, you, whew, he, he'll show you. Okay? So don't be stubborn and keep going forward when he wants you to stop and humble yourself. And I believe just last week I said humility is not when you think of yourself less, it's when you don't think of yourself at all. All right? And so you think about the other person. You think about the job. You think about what needs to be done. How can I help that job get done? That is where humility comes in and with each other. I'm working in a team. I'm going to contribute what I'm good at, and they're going to contribute what they're good at, and I'm not going to be jealous of them. They're not going to be jealous of me. We're going to work that out. This shows the right attitude toward God and before God. When we humble ourselves, notice, under the mighty hand of God, it ought to be a no-brainer, but for some reason it is. And, and I guess the some reason is, we can't see God with our physical eyes. I love the phrase when faith turns to sight because we walk in this world by faith. What we cannot see, but because God told it to us, we believe we walk by faith. When we get to heaven, we're going to see what he told us plus a whole lot more, probably almost to an infinite degree that he just said, if I told you everything, it'd kill you, so I'm not going to tell you, but trust me, it's really good. It's at least this good, so come on up. Remember, heaven always adds, it never subtracts. You're not going to miss anything when you leave earth if you're going to heaven. You won't miss a thing because where you're going is so much better than here. It always adds to it. We, we, get, we, we get so attached to the things of this world. I love that hymn that says, Put, uh, cast your eyes upon Jesus and it says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I love that phrase. It's a great phrase. So it, notice what he says. If you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he can exalt you if you're already in your mind exalted. How can God exalt a guy who thinks he's already exalted? Hey, I'm in charge here. I'm the boss. I'm the big cheese. And God says, hey, I want to exalt you. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he wants, he's going to humble you if you're a believer. And by the way, the Bible says in Proverbs 30, I believe it is, verse 1, he that is often reproved hardens his neck will suddenly be cut off in that without remedy. God wants you to humble yourselves, and, and hardening your neck is, we would say, bow up. We bow up and say, I'm going to get through this. No, God says, relax, let go. Know that I'm God. You know, that's the literal translation of when he said, be still and know that I'm God. The literal translation in our modern language is, relax, let go. Don't cling to it so tightly. And we do that so easily, don't we? But I want to warn you about something in this verse. He says, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. That proper time may be in heaven. Because if I'm thinking he's going to exalt me on earth, what am I still doing? 
I'm still wanting that position of importance. I'm still wanting that person to look at me as the big cheese, you know, the, 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 the guy in charge. And so he says, if you humble yourself at the proper, you trust him that he will exalt you at the proper time. Well, for probably most of us, that may not be in this world at all. But what does God promise us? Just let me throw this in here. It's not in the text necessarily. It is, but it's, and that is he is with us to the end. That's what Jesus promised in Matthew 28, right? And I will be with you to the end of the age. So he's with us. So what are you worrying about? He is there with you right now. And so, so understand that. But then notice what he says right behind this in verse 7. We humble ourselves and we show our humility by casting all our anxieties on him. So we take all that stuff we worry about and we say, hey God, here's a mess. Can you do something with that? And he goes, well, of course I can. That's what I've been waiting on for you to let go of it so I could get to it. You ever had somebody want you to do something and they kept trying to snap? Let's say, they, hey, can you fix this? And you start fixing it. They go, yeah, but right here, you got it. And then they put their hands on it. I always just let go and say, do you want to do it or you want me to do it? Because that drives me nuts. Don't ask me to do something and then get in there with me to do it. If you can't do it, you, if you can do it, do it. If you want me to do it, I'll do it. Okay, I, I, I say idiosyncrasy. Hope that wasn't too much anger in my voice, but just one of my pet peeves. Sorry, I'm, I'm real. Well, God goes, oh, you want to handle that? Go ahead. Sort of like that bumper sticker was popular for a little while, and then somebody thought it through, and now you don't see it anymore. God's my co-pilot. Really? You think you fly in that plane? You in trouble from the get, man. You got to be a passenger. You know, God ain't your co-pilot. He's your pilot. You're just he's going where he wants to take you if you were submitted to him and yielded to him, right? And so we cast our anxiety on him. We quit telling him how to do it. This is where worry enters because we hold on to our anxiety instead of give it to him. Why don't we give it to him? Because we have a belief that we can solve our own problems because obviously God's not doing such a great job. That's what worry says to God. Hey, God, obviously you can't handle this, so I'm going to worry about it. I'm fortunate. I had a dad who didn't worry a whole lot. I'm sure he did, but I didn't know it. But my mom used to tell me, because my mom was a warrior, and my mom used to tell me, well, your dad has always said, and he told me too, worry is a, wasted, a waste of emotion. Because if you can fix it, fix it. If you can't, worrying about it ain't going to fix it. And my dad didn't have good English, but he sure had good theology. And so to worry about it is to take a responsibility that belongs to God. God may have you in a place where you can't do anything, to help bring humility in your life, to bring that trust and that faith up to the level he wants you to be so that he can do it. God is, does, let me ask you a question. Is God in control? Just enjoy it. Does God know how to run your life better than you know how to run your life? So why, why do you keep trying to rest that wheel of driving that car back from him? Let, let, let him do that. Now, I know there's a balance here. I love Psalm 139 because it lets me know that the day I'm going to die is already set. He said it before he created the world. That's what it says in Psalm 139. He knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb. The day of my birthday and my death was set in stone. I was, according to the doctors, I was two weeks late in July, which was last week, Friday, a week ago, in Charleston before there was air conditioning in the house. My poor mom. Because I weighed 8.15 at birth. I was one ounce shy, nine pound baby. In July, in Charleston, no air conditioning. Bless her heart. 
So either the doctor was wrong or God had a date. And he goes, nope, that one's going nine and a half months. I don't know how it worked. But I was, according to them, a little late. Never caught up. Still late. But never got on time since then. And so, but that day of my death set. But you know what I don't do? I don't go stand out on 262 and dare a Mack truck to hit me. Because that's stupid. Is God in control? Sure he is. I bought insurance. There's a balance. We understand it. When you put your trust in the things of man, that's where you go wrong. And especially when you put trust in yourself to do stuff. If one of my children ever said, Dad, don't you trust me? I'd go, I don't trust myself. Why would I trust you? None of us are trustworthy. All of us will sin and fall short of God's glory. So, so I'm not fussing at you. I'm just saying, do something different with your worry. And that's what Peter wants to let us know. And, and so he, why do we cast our anxiety on him? Because he cares for you. See, you can trust someone who loves you and God loves you. The, the strongest word in the Old Testament there is loving kindness. It's a word so deep and so vast we cannot define it adequately. It, it's a concept that we can't get a hold of. That God will love me for eternity. In fact, and you probably heard this before too, but it's been said, if you could live a, a million years and you got better and better and better and better and better every day, at the end of a million years, God would love you no more than he loves you right now. Conversely, if you lived a million years and you got worse and worse and worse and worse every day for a million years, God would not love you any less than he loves you right now. The love of God is constant and complete, especially for the believer. There will be a judgment on those who refuse him and, uh, and, and do not come under his grace. But he doesn't, he doesn't love you less when you mess up and he doesn't love you more when you get it right. The reason he wants you to get it right is it's good for you. Not good for him, he's got it handled. It's good for you when you trust God and let him handle it. And whatever comes, it will be for your good and for his glory. He cares for you. That is the motivation for humility. You can afford to be humble. Go back and read the opening verses of John 13, Jesus at the Last Supper, knowing who he was, where he came from, where he was headed to, and knowing that, that God the Father had given him those disciples, and they were his, and he loved them to the end. He could put on humility because he didn't worry about who he was. He trusted the Father to take him that the Bible says in Psalm that his body would not see corruption in the grave and that through the Holy Spirit he gave uh, his life on the cross and through the Holy Spirit he was raised back from the dead and God did not come short of his promise and he is our example so when we don't submit ourselves to God when we don't cast our cares on him we worry and worry is pride and pride comes when you think God can't handle it. Or you don't like the way he's handling it. God asks you to take care of this, but you're not doing it the way I wanted you to. <laughs> Anybody but me ever done it that way too? Yeah, I've done it that way. Y'all keep your hand down. I don't want you to embarrass yourself, but I don't mind being embarrassed. I've done it. Hey, God, I asked for this, but uh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> well, because you're dumb. <laughs> and I'm not, you know. God knows the best for me. So everything in my life is the best for me. Do you understand? I hope you can get that concept. God is good and he does good. He loves you. He wants your best. We just want something else. But it's not the best. 
Well, the second thing, that's, that's what happens when pride is present. We worry, we go into sin. But what happens when the enemy is present? Now, here's, a, here's where the rubber hits the road, verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When the enemy is present, we need eternal vigilance. I love that phrase, and it, it, we use it in our military, eternal vigilance. And there are two requirements for us to be vigilant. First, sobriety, serious-minded. If you ever drop your guard, you're in trouble. We don't have the physical, mental, emotional capacity to always be on guard. We've got to trust God. We can't always be there. But he says, be sober-minded. Take this seriously. There's so many things we don't take seriously. I hear people say it. I've said it myself. Oh, but it's only. The favorite word amongst most people, I want to say Baptist, but I don't think we own the rights to this word, is the word just. It's just one little thing. It's just that. It's just this other thing. We ought to eliminate the word just. I, I, I was watching a TV show the other day, and the daughter said to the dad, we're early. He said, there's no such thing as uh, or we're, we'll be on time, I'm sorry. And he says, no such thing as on time. You're either early or you're late. God is never early and he's never late. He's always on time. He hits it perfectly every time. What do we do when the enemy is there? We got to be sober-minded. We got to take seriously the threat. What did Jesus tell us about Satan when he was in his body on the earth in John 10? He said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the nature of the thief, Right? That's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy your life, wants to kill you, wants to destroy you. And unfortunately, we hand him the gun and the bullets to do that with. Secondly, it takes watchfulness. You got to be serious-minded, but we also have to be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. I'm not making these words up. They're in the Bible. Be watchful, be looking. You know, God created the male side of of, of the human species to be watchful. Y'all know that? That's why we historically hunt and go to war. Uh, There was a funny little cartoon thing. Not cartoon, but a, 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 well, it was an old film clip. Somebody showed it to me the other day. And it said, man ruins his relationship with his girlfriend or wife because when she asked him, what are you thinking about? He told her the truth. Because guys' minds are just wheeling around all the time. We're, we're looking, we're observing, we're thinking. We're always ready because God designed us to be that way. He says spiritually you ought to be the same way. You ought to be watchful. You see, God knows the, the place where Satan is holed up. He knows the place where Satan is hiding to attack you. Do you realize that Satan was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying? You say, well, how do you prove that from Scripture? I'm glad you asked that. If you go back a chapter, back into chapter 13, the Bible says Satan having already entered Judas. And then when Jesus is praying, Judas comes in with the soldiers. Satan was present where Jesus was praying. There's no place you can go to get away from the presence of evil. Not in the, you say, well, at church, no, it's here. I've seen it come in. You say, with your physical eyes, well, I've seen it in people's faces. 
I, I didn't see like the spirit thing, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no place where he can't get to. So you've got to be watchful. Now that'll drive you crazy. But God knows where he is. So you submit yourself to the shepherd, get under his protection, and he take, he, he'll have to take care of that. He'll warn you. He'll show you. He, Jesus protected those disciples there in the garden. But notice what it says about the devil. It says... He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I've heard this illustration since the 80s about the old lion. And I said, I'm not going to say that to the church unless I do my own research. So I looked it up. And here's what I found in a scientific um, posting. Older lions do not, I'm sorry, older lions who've lost their teeth and ability to hunt have been observed using their still powerful roars to distract prey from younger hunting lions who are prowling nearby and to scare the prey closer to the actual predatory pride members. In other words, when a lion is toothless and old, his roar is still effective. So they position him in one place and they set a trap across from him and he roars and the prey runs toward death and God describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour because Satan doesn't work by himself he's got some other people helping him some other beings right did you know it's he God used a lion on for a reason he created them it's got the loudest roar of all the big cats 114 decibels at one meter away rock concerts are about 120 at one meter away so that tells you how loud it can be heard for five miles and the devil roars, and if you believe the roar, you'll run into danger. That's the point Peter's making. You see, he goes on to say, resist the devil. Resist him, verse 9. Resist is a word that cannot be passive. It has to be active. You can't say, well, I just, I don't want to do anything to get his attention. I'm just going to be real quiet. I'm just going to show up at church. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to be real quiet. And I'm going to go home. I'm not going to get involved. I just don't want anybody to notice me. I don't want Satan to notice me. He knows where you are. He's already got you. You've never overcome an enemy by hiding from him. You have to stand up and approach throwing lead down range. You've got to just come at him firing the gospel gun. That's the only way to beat him. No, that's all poetic and sounds brave. Let's, let's look at how can we actually do this. How do we actually resist him? Came up with, with a few things because it, it has to be active. First of all, we always get caught up in what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? First, you got to have the right attitude. You got to love God so much, you don't want to sin. Let me say that again. You got to love God so much, you don't want to sin. Okay, thank you. Help me out here. What did he say? They said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You ought to love him completely. And if you love him completely, you want to please him. You say, but I'm so weak. I know you're weak. That's not the point. Do you love God enough to let him make you strong? Well, yeah. Okay. Then quit worrying about you being weak because you can't get strong on your own. Remember, you're poor in spirit. You got nothing. You have nothing. You have no means of getting anything or strength to do it. You've got to rest in him. And when you do that and mourn that condition, he gives you what you need in order to live out this life. And so we have to resist him actively. So first of all, we've got to be in a place where we love God. If, if I love my wife, I will not want to stray. Right? 
If I love my friend, I will not want to betray him. I won't want him to go into trouble. I want to protect him or her, whatever that may be. So the first thing you got to have is an absolute, unconditional, total abandoned love for God. And then Jesus said the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and then love your neighbor. You don't, you're not even in the formula except what you do there. But then I would say, because he says it later on, know God's word. He said, stand firm in your faith. You've got to know what your faith is. You've got to know what God said about it. You say, well, I'm not that smart. Well, neither am I. That's why he wrote it down for us and you can read it. In fact, I'm, I'm toying with an idea for next year. Starting in 2024. How would you like to read the entire Old Testament over a year, taking notes on it five days a week, and at the end of that, you'll know a whole lot more about the Old Testament, a guided study. Would you be up for that? I would love for us as a church to do that. Because the Old Testament is such a mystery to most of us, and it will help us. I, just a thought I had this week, because I ran across a, a resource that we could use to do that. It would be wonderful. And we can help each other. We can do that. We can learn a lot. I don't know. But we got to know God's Word. we got to know what it says. And then we got to claim the authority God has given us. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? We quote it all the time. He said, all authority is given to me. Now, therefore, you go. He sent us out. He gave us his authority. He gave us the badge. We're not the marshal. We're the deputy. He's the marshal. And I come in his name. The U.S. Marshal Services. Every one of them is a deputy marshal. He's not the marshal. The United States government's the marshal. They are the deputies. God is the marshal. We're his deputies. Go, therefore, and take the gospel to the whole world. Go out into the whole world and proclaim the gospel. When you do that, the enemy doesn't like it. He's going to attack you. So he says, so be vigilant, be sober-minded, be watchful, and resist him. When you see him come to work, in the name of Jesus, you take that authority. And not as a magic formula, but because you have a relationship with the Father. Father, in the name of Jesus, we need your help. He's coming after us. You've got to do something. And we claim the authority that Christ, of the Christ in us. And then, I'm going to repeat it, be firm in believing God's word. What happened in the garden? God said, you can eat of all the trees except that one. Don't eat that one. Satan shows up in chapter 3, and he says, has God said, thou shalt not die. Roar. And she believed the roar instead of the quiet, still voice of God. See, we think people aren't serious until they're yelling. That's why preachers yell, you know. <laughs> My wife always told me, I know when you don't really know what you're talking about because you yell louder. <laughs> and she's probably right. <laughs> We've got to resist him. And I want you to notice something in these verses. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be over today, so if, if you quit before me, you, you're free to leave. Resist them in, firm in your faith, firm in your faith. But look at this motivation, that the same suffering is happening to Christians all around the world. You're not a special sufferer. You're not the first person to have that problem. We all think that way. I think that way. I'm like, nobody's ever been as bad as me. Nobody's ever faced this like I am. No, that's not true. Our brothers, in fact, that was a prayer request from Dr. Lawless today. Pray for believers around the world today who are suffering under persecution to meet as a church and, and, and to worship God. We don't have that problem and we don't even think about it. It'd be good if we had to think about it. 
Suffering has happened to Christians around the world. So quit whining about your little bit of first world suffering. And give it all to Jesus. And get to work for him. That's what Peter's telling us. Quit your whining. That's another way to say that. Think about it. Man, you're not the only one suffering. Quit whining about your suffering. You're all suffering together. Resist Satan. Don't, you're never out of the fight. But I've talked about when our pride is present, when our enemy is present. But I want to talk about when God is present. This is the good part. Verses 10 and 11. Go back to verse 6 for a second. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he may exalt you. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. The word grace is another way of saying power. The God of all spiritual power you need. We, Baptists used to have a little acronym. They said, it, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's more than that. It's God's righteousness at Christ's enabling. He expects you to become righteous. He expects you to become obedient. He expects you to grow into the image of Christ. Will you get there perfectly in this world? No. He'll complete that work when we get to heaven. But we are supposed to be in a process of changing day by day by day by day into the very image of Christ. And while you are suffering, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to salvation, who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ. You notice that the calling in the Bible is to salvation. After that, we are obedient to his will. And so he, it says here, he's called you into his eternal and glory in Christ. And he himself, Christ himself, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Those four words, they are so close together, you don't have to define all four. They all are saying the same thing from a different angle. You just put them all together. He's going to restore you. He's going to come to you. But before you get too excited, there's preachers that are going to preach that, yeah, in this world, God's going to bless me and I'm going to be without worry and I'm going to have everything I need and everything's going to be great. He said, after a little while, Paul put it a different way, but it's the same thing Peter's telling us here. Peter and Paul were buddies. They knew each other, right? Don't forget that. Paul put it this way. I've been shipwrecked this many times. I've been beaten with a cat of nine tails this many times. I've been hungry, I've been in the deep, I've been floating in the ocean because of the shipwreck. I've, I've been bitten by snakes, I've been stoned, all these things. And then he says, this momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Peter puts it in different words. After you've suffered for a little while, my lifetime is a little while. It's not even a blip on the screen, on the on the radar screen of time. The God of all grace, who called you into salvation, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He could do it in this lifetime. He may do for some of us. He may do it in this lifetime. But if you go to your grave suffering, your suffering's over if you're in Christ. It's done. And he's going to restore you and establish you and comfort you and give you everything you need. So can you suffer a little while just to get to there? If, if I had a loved one that lived in the middle of nowhere, USA, and I'd had to take a flight to the nearest big city, rent a car and drive hours and hours on a superhighway, and then take a secondary road, and then 
from that secondary highway, take a secondary road, a two-lane, and then I got to a spot where I got to take a dirt road or a gravel road and drive several more miles to get to the one I loved. Would I not do that because I long to be there? Of course I would. So if God calls you to take a gravel road through life or a dirt road or even get bogged down somewhere, is it worth it? Absolutely. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to salvation. But when you get on that road with Jesus, his presence is with you for the whole trip. You ever had to take a long trip by yourself? Goes on forever. You ever been talking to a loved one on a long trip? You go, we're there already? So a whole different thing. And when you got Jesus with you on that narrow road, you're never alone. So don't worry. Let me give you a couple of things to take home, a few things. First of all, remember, worry is the sin of pride. Again, I, I know there's a balance. I didn't say you won't think about it and say you won't be anxious. We, we're anxious for our kids. We're anxious for their safety. And that's, God put that in us so we don't ignore them and they go walk off a cliff or drown in a pool. I get that. But worrying is the sin of pride. And so we got to let go. And then access the grace, access the power through Christ to fight that worry. You put aside the worry by casting your anxiety on you. Here, Lord, I'm going to give that to you. Our problem is we won't take it back too quickly, right? But once you get that grace in your life, you access that grace. You say, how do I do that? The means of grace. You, the Bible, prayer, fellowship with other believers. All the, all the ways that we bring grace into our life by acknowledging God, knowing God, reading about God, praying to God, being conscious and a sober mind and conscious of his presence in your life. Then go out and fight pride and worry. Fight the enemy who wants to get you so concerned that you can't act. The paralysis of analysis. How am I going to fix this problem? I don't know what I'm going to do. It's best thing to do is let go and say, God, I made a mess there. Can you do it? Yeah, I can fix that. Just get out of the way. I'll take care of it. And that's what he will do. But boy, you've got to walk through that. That's tough. So I can't say everything needs to be said. I don't know that I know everything needs to be said out of this passage. But I hope that sets you on a journey of seeking God today to know his word. Next week, we're going to come... See what Second Peter is all about. Remember, I, I told y'all, a wise man told me one time that people that don't believe in God that are what we'd call uh, liberal theologians, not just the liberal, but liberal theologians. Somebody doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Hate Second Peter for three reasons. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. So we're going to look at those. Why? What is God telling us there that will really have been a fair lives? Father... In Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, indeed, that we would cast our anxiety on you because you care for us. Lord, you love us more than we love ourselves. You call us to a life of faith and that our sight is really right now just faith in you and your revealed will and the word and, the wor and how you lead us in this life to follow you and to know you.